Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ariel Eberly. We're at Yamhill Valley Vineyards. It's August 21st, 2018. And Ariel, we'll start by asking you, why wine? Um, well, I started in science. I've always been really uh, just gravitated towards science ever since high school. I had a biology teacher and then went into AP biology and decided at that point that I was going to major in biology at Oregon State when I went there. Um, and it was sort of a convoluted path to wine, as it is for many winemakers. Uh, I w studied biology with a chemistry minor, so was preparing to be pre-med, going into um, chiropractic or some kind of alternative medicine, because I have uh, scoliosis and mm -hmm. I had a spinal fusion, so I wanted to help other people that had been through similar uh, you know, physical challenges as what I had been through. But as I worked in clinics and hospitals, I found that the environment just wasn't the right match for me. You know, spending my time in a hospital was a little dark and sad, <laughs> in the, in, especially in the winter months of Oregon. Sure. So I, uh, at that point, kind of left the country. I went to teach English in Korea. And um, when I came back, I grew up in Oregon. I, hadn't really left Oregon much uh, up till that point besides, you know, family trips. Mm -hmm. And so going and living in the third biggest city in the world definitely gave me an appreciation for Oregon and the Willamette Valley specifically. <laughs> so I came back, I had this new appreciation for, you know, the land of milk, honey, and wine. And I, um, at that point, had had the chance to develop my love of Riesling, which I now call the gateway wine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I came back and I knew that it was the right time to get my foot in the door if I wanted to get involved with winemaking. And mm -hmm. I just had always been drawn to vineyards. There mm -hmm. was this, you know, beautif beautiful, like organization of chaos in a way where it's this, you know, botanical, beautifully organized thing but aesthetically pleasing, but there's also this wildness to mm -hmm. it. So that's kind of what drew me in in the first place with the vineyard and then um, just the timing of everything. So knowing that I needed to get my foot in the door during harvest pushed me to come here. I applied with Stephen Carey. We met and he needed someone. So we, he asked me to come back the next day and I guess the rest is history. I just <laughs> fell in love with the process at that point. Sure and started falling more in love with wines and learning about our region too. So as, a, as someone who was a native Oregonian, it was this whole other side of Oregon that I hadn't seen before. Was there a moment uh, at which when wine became a thought of, uh, as a career for you, like was there a moment when you decided it was more than just something you enjoyed, it was something you actually wanted to do? Yeah, I think when I applied for the job here really? is really when it became a, a thought as a possibility in my mind. And I remember I had pretty much decided at that point 
that I was going to try this out. And it felt a little bit, you know, coming from the medical field where there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of different directions you can go, it sort of felt like deciding you want to be a ballerina or something. You know, it's like this job that I didn't know anyone in the wine industry at that point. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of pursuing it in, as a potential career interest and what better way than to start working in the field and True. get that firsthand knowledge. And then as soon as I did start doing the work during harvest, I quickly realized that it was not just a job, you know, it was a lifestyle mm -hmm. and it was very much, um, you know, I fell in love with the people here and this place. I mean, I think that, you know, being, someone who appreciates the outdoors and appreciates nature to have the opportunity to like have that be something that's in intertwined into my career. Mm -hmm. I had never really considered a job of that nature before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it became uh, a thought pretty quickly at, right when I started working Harvest. Sure. Yeah. So coming from a background where you ha hadn't ever worked in the industry to jumping right into a harvest, what were your initial impressions of, of what, what it was like to work in wine? Hmm. Well, I, you know, I guess my, it's hard to remember a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess initially I thought it was just a really fun process. Mm -hmm. um, I liked the, the team mentality of it. So, you know, we've, I came into a, already really well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. We have our vineyard manager here at Yamhill that's been here for over 25 years. His wife came on about five years after he started working. So, you know, she was the one that explained how to hydrate the yeast to me and we still work together today. Um, then also, you know, working with Stephen Carey who has had, you know, at that point, a good 20 years of experience mm -hmm. with this property mm -hmm. and I think it was just really appealing from the beginning it was like uh, I belonged mm -hmm. and it wasn't like a nine-to-five job which is pretty much all the jobs I had had before I mean I moved to Korea to teach English and to do a job but the benefit of that was you know seeing another country mm -hmm. um, so I guess that was the first job that wasn't really just a job, mm -hmm. but this seems like a really good fit from the, from the start, and I and I just uh, yeah, it it just seemed to click. It didn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. It felt fun, mm -hmm. and it felt like you had this connection to the people you worked with. Like you know, you think about like war, right? Like you're almost like in the trenches mm -hmm. with each other. So you create this really strong bond with people when you're working, you know, 80 hours a week for six weeks, you, they become family. I think that was a big part of what made it feel like the right fit. Sure. You mentioned Stephen Carey, uh, who hired you. Tell me a little bit about him and, and working with him. Yeah. So Stephen, uh, Stephen, started Cary Oregon Wines a long time ago, and that's how he was introduced to Yamhill Valley Vineyards. He um, basically started representing them, mm -hmm. represented us at the Burgundy Challenge, which in a lot of ways is what put Oregon on the map, 10 Burgundy wines 
with 10 Oregon wines back in 1985. They poured the 1983 vintage and Yamhill was one of the first, it was either first or second place during mm -hmm. that Burgundy challenge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had this vision and then put it to work. And that I would say remained true during my time here working with Steven. He had a vision and he was always really dedicated to the varietal Pinot Noir and also very dedicated to this place. So, um, you know, his words are, Yamhill has this distinctively Yamhill terroir. <laughs> so that sense of place mm -hmm. and really bringing what a lot of the French talk about with terroir and applying it here. And so working with him over the years, I've had this opportunity to learn about this place. And during our winemaking, one of the things that he really uh, put a lot of importance on is keeping all the blocks separate and learning from each of the blocks individually. And we continue to do that and honor that philosophy. Um, unfortunately, Stephen passed away earlier this year um, in April. Mm -hmm. And so having had the opportunity to work with him for almost a decade and then, you know, continuing the legacy that the Burgers and that Stephen Carey have put so much of their lives and uh, passions into is the way that I see my role. So it's, it's an honor to have the chance to work with someone and then also kind of now have this opportunity to fine tune the winemaking mm -hmm. and make sure that each of those blocks ends up in the ideal place despite the vintage. So, you know, not making assumptions about what's coming off the vineyard, even though we do get to know it really well over the course of, you know, 30 years mm -hmm. of winemaking and knowledge sharing. But um, yeah, we want to continue that onward and honor his legacy in that way. So real pleasure to work with him. I think he taught me a lot of things, uh, even if he didn't intend to teach me them. <laughs> and that's been really the the foundation of my my knowledge, my my uh, education sure. with winemaking. You talk a little bit about uh, sort of his legacy. Do you, do you feel like any pressure to kind of follow in his footsteps? <laughs> Every so often, yes. Uh, like we just had our 35th anniversary party th this last Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, so 2018, celebrating 35 years of Yamhill Valley Vineyards. Pretty exciting. Uh, and then, of course, when the owners come up to you and say, you know, Stephen was the fabric of this place, and now you're that fabric, of course I feel pressure. <laughs> but I, in that moment, really work to remind the owners and our whole team that all of us are the fabric. And, um, you know, I know that one person could never do everything that we have going on here. Sure. It takes all of us. It takes a village, so to say. So to say. And it, um, I think I'm pretty quick to remind myself and our team of that. I always want to like share that with everyone mm -hmm. and that makes me feel less pressure because <laughs> there's a whole bunch of us working really hard to sure. make better wines every year sure. here. Um, you mentioned some of the lessons also from him. Were there specific lessons that stick with you as you're, as you're working now or that you would pass on to your generation of, of winemaker? Yeah, yeah. I think um, 
the, what I was saying earlier, just, you know, the lesson of listening to the fruit and listening to the vineyard, that's something that Stephen talked about, um, especially during the last two years of working with him. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, he really drove home the, the, the points around, you know, removing ego mm -hmm. and allowing yourself to be an observer and that really resonates with me. Um, and that's, that's always been something that I've wanted to do as an individual. And uh, I think it works really well with this particular job because, you know, we have this ever-changing climate. We have this ever-changing vintage and opportunity. So when I talk about not making assumptions about what each of the blocks are bringing in or what any one particular year is going to bring, um, it can be challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, human nature, I think it's meant we kind of compartmentalize mm -hmm. and we start to see patterns and we want to like label something as something specific, you know, like we want to say, oh, this block, our hilltop block always performs really well and ends up in our reserve wines. Well, I like to, I think a lot of what Steven taught me is be open-minded mm -hmm. and just because you think that something might end up a certain way, you can be surprised. And to, you know, just to remain open to that, sure. I think is a big part of everything that he's taught me. Sure. Yeah. So what was your what was your role when you were first hired and then kind of take me through kind of your progression to your current role? Sure. Um, well, I was a harvest assistant, you know, harvest intern mm -hmm. when I was hired. And I think I was making like $10 an hour. And I was here for the, really for the education, that hands-on work. Mm -hmm. I had at that point my degree in biology, my chemistry minor. And so that's, I remember that's what I said in the interview. I said, you know, I've never made wine before, but I'm a hard worker and I'm a quick study. And I think he really needed help. So he was <laughs> like, all right, let's do this. Come back tomorrow, we'll, we'll start off. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, started as an intern. And like I said, Monica was the one to teach me about the yeast rehydration and, and the whole team you know, worked. And I learned then about the processing and became really comfortable with this particular place and how we run things mm -hmm. here. Um, and the agreement was that I was just going to be an intern and, you know, whether that be six or eight weeks, I hadn't had plans to keep with them mm -hmm. long term. But as the eight weeks wrapped up, um, we're getting closer to Thanksgiving. And so I talked to uh, our, the owner of our winery, Dennis Berger, mm -hmm. and I said, you know, I'd really like to stay on if there's more opportunity for me here. And he said, yeah, you know, what do you feel about going, working in the vineyard and learning how to prune? And how do you feel about, you know, going to New Zealand and doing a harvest there? So he su had suggested that, and I was, I had the bug at that point, you know, <laughs> I was, I, I was ready to be a grape chaser at that point. So. I said, yeah, let's do it. So I worked again with Monica in the fields that first winter, mm -hmm. learned how to prune out there, kind of got more comfortable with 
uh, our site, being out in the field is very different than being in the winery. So, and that's part of it that I still love today, you know, going out there and really observing what's mm -hmm. going on in the vineyard and what the vines are, what kind of pressure they're under, depending on the year. Um, and then in, in spring came and I had arranged to work at a, a winery in New Zealand, mm -hmm. the 2009 vintage in the su Southern Hemisphere. I did at Palliser Estate, worked with Alan Johnson down there. and. Had a great time. It was a bigger winery, worked with a little bigger crew. Uh, I was the day shift, you know, we had a day shift and a night shift. That's not something we ever had here. Sure. We were also bringing fruit in from other places. So at that point, I really developed an appreciation for having all estate fruit, <laughs> just the timeliness of it mm -hmm. and the, the quality that you can retain by having, you know, literally 10 minutes from the time that it's picked to the time that you can start processing it. Sure was very attractive at that point for a lot of reasons, for the quality, but also just, you're not waiting around for hours on end for fruit to show up and you, you get to compact your day down a little bit sure. more in, and be more efficient. Um, so anyway, th then I came back and I worked in the tasting room here at Yam Hill that summer. And that's really, that worked out all really well for me because I really wanted to be able to learn all the aspects of the business. Sure. Um, and yeah, at that point I just kept, I kept learning. So I went back to school. I, I started taking one class per term at Chemeketa Wine Center. Um, I worked, you know, took classes from Barney Watson. I took classes from Jessica Cortell. Mm -hmm. I again wanted to get a really broad education so I took marketing classes I took of course winemaking classes was the bulk of the education mm -hmm. that I received there but also sensory and also viticulture and soils classes <laughs> and so I feel like all of that knowledge could be really useful here and up until this point I had only ever been at a job for about a year and here I am you know getting ready to go into my second year at Yamhill so Again, harvest, more school, um, more involved with the winemaking during that second year. So became the cellar master mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, did another harvest in New Zealand, went to Shard Farm in New Zealand in 2010 on the South Island. More of a similar size winery. Mm -hmm. So um, really cool to be able to work down there and then bring ideas back and make improvements here. And then also vice versa, offer them sure. different ideas about how we do things here as well um, but yeah I got the chance to work with a lot of really great winemakers internationally because of that uh, work with John Wallace at uh, Shard Farm and made some great friends down there and then came back and I think it was probably around 2011 I became assistant winemaker mm -hmm. so 2009 I started making the Chardonnay Dennis the owner of our winery is really loves Chardonnay and we had planted the wrong clone of Chardonnay the first mm -hmm. time around but he was so dedicated to it we got the right clones we planted uh, clone 76 and 95 on one of our best sites on our property and he entrusted me with that program starting in 2009 so I was able to move into being assistant winemaker Again, I think that was right around 2011 when it was like official. Mm -hmm. And then um, in 2016, 
Stephen passed the torch and felt comfortable enough at that point. I had, you know, kind of been the primary person running Harvest mm -hmm. um, for two years until that point. And so he felt comfortable to do that. And that was a huge honor. I think, um, you know, if you've, you've met Stephen, you know Stephen. And he, he definitely likes things a certain way mm -hmm. and has ideas about the way it should be. So I would say I would owe a lot of my competency to him in the sense that the title didn't come too early. I felt very prepared mm -hmm. and I feel like he felt at peace with that decision. Mm -hmm. So from spring of 2016, we then hired our current assistant winemaker, Lynn Griswold, and um, kind of the rest has been us as the winemaking team going forward. So uh, Steven still helped us with uh, the winemaking, especially during harvest. He got this great excitement during <laughs> harvest and had so much energy and was ready to go and kind of our um, circus coordinator, if you will, <laughs> on the forklift, making sure all the bins end up in the right place mm -hmm. and everything is kept separate and organized, really important part of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, he kind of got to sit back and watch the well-oiled machine that you know he had spent so long developing. So yeah, now I'm head winemaker and Lynn and I are the winemaking team. And um, yeah, just trying to make the best wines we can from our place every year. Our goal is just to keep doing experimentation and um, again, you know, have that observing kind of philosophy that, mm -hmm. you know, we're listening, we're not dictating anything. Mm -hmm. sure. we're, we're allowing the fruit to ferment in different ways and then we're checking back in with it and seeing how did that go? Should we do this again? And because of, you know, how much collaboration there is in the wine industry, especially in Oregon, we've been able to have a lot of success with the experiments that we've carefully chosen from collaboration and events like Steamboat. So sure. that's the path. It's been now, you know, 10 years mm -hmm. of working here. And I, if you asked me that, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think I would have known it would be this long of a journey with one place, mm -hmm. but it's just a great fit. Sure. And it's allowed me to learn a lot of different aspects of the of the business. So sure. it's a pretty great path to being able to go abroad and f complete your education or continue your education and things like that. Yeah, I'm curious. Speaking of education, I'm curious with a biology chemistry background. Did how prepared were you when you started, and how much how much of it was I have this great theoretical knowledge, and how much of it was I have to get my hands dirty and actually and actually see it happening. How prepared did you feel when you started working with the science of it? Um, hmm. I think luckily at that point, I didn't have to be really prepared. You know, mm -hmm. I was able to come in and observe mm -hmm. and do what an intern does. And um, I, I wouldn't say I felt very prepared. I would say it's, I think, Personality-wise, I'm a moderate person, and I like to feel really over-prepared in order to feel confident about mm -hmm. something. So, you know, maybe it might take me, you know, 10, 
10 tank transfers more to feel comfortable with that task. But at that point, it's all right, I got it, I got that. So um, yeah, I would say the preparedness or that feeling of confidence mm -hmm. developed over probably the first four or five years to really, you know, feel like, oh yeah, I, I, I got this. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna mess it up. But that's just sort of my personality. Mm -hmm. I tend to be more cautious and, you know, I'm not gonna try and move something with the forklift as fast as possible. I'm going to be careful and, you know, get it, get it done with moderation. And then once I have that skill set, then I feel like, all right, what's next? Sure. You've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm curious if you can sort of describe your, your winemaking philosophy and, and how you've developed it sort of on, on the job. Yeah, uh, again, I just think not to strong arm something, you mm -hmm. know? The philosophy is to really let the fruit be what it is, and then over time, because we do have the opportunity and this real honor to work with the same place every year mm -hmm. to experiment and then listen. And um, whether that be something, you know, with a specific goal in mind. So last year, for example, we're really working to increase our uh, stability of our wines. So we've made some changes with our barrel program, updated a lot of our older barrels, um, done a lot of mitigation with microbial issues mm -hmm. in the process of updating our barrel program. Um, you know, I, I'd say the, the science is always going to be the way that I think about things. Uh, I really appreciated my time with Barney Watson because he's extremely scientifically minded <laughs> and has the chemistry part down. So I think having that as my background, I'm able to lean on that pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. But then with the component that's more the experimental, more listening to the fruit, that's where the artistry comes in. And that's where, you know, Lynn and I are able to sit down at the blending table and have a conversation. And then at that point decide, you know, what direction are we taking this? And what, what is this fruit asking for? What is it responding well to? we should keep doing this, we should expand this, or you know, maybe we need to back off of this particular yeast that we're using, or, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Really um, a philosophy based around listening and observing, and always with a strong structure of science and an opportunity for artistry. Sure. Is it tough to not, to be patient with the fruit? Is it tough to not want to like manage every part of it? Um, it used to be, but I think after the first time you bottle and then you learn that it doesn't benefit you to go and taste that bottle every, you know, month even, <laughs> to let it sit for six months and put it in the back of your mind and work on things that are going to be more productive and give you uh, more positive results. I mean, there's never a lack of things to do around here, so I think that combined with learning that patience is a virtue is has really made it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say I came into this as a very patient person, 
maybe teaching English started that mm-hmm. that trait, but um, uh, I'd say it's developed and it's pretty like strong core characteristic now mm-hmm. because by nature you do need to be patient. I mean, from the time that you see the bud break, you know, with all the potential fruit out here and then going to bottle and then actually releasing that wine is, you know, three plus years. Mm -hmm. So it's something you kind of learn to do by um, necessity, I think. It just becomes a part of that, um, I guess, the natural time cycle. And with that, now I feel like I'm really in tune with it. Like there's a seasonality and it keeps me engaged because what we're doing every season changes. So it keeps my interest. I think that's probably another reason why I've been able to stay somewhere for almost 10 years or over 10 years is because it's, it's just new and different every little section of the way. And you keep looking forward instead of wondering about that wine that you bottled six months ago, keep looking forward and then just wait for the alarm on your phone to go off and tell you when to check it. And then you're good. You don't have to be impatient. There's sure. always something to focus on that's more important than waiting. Sure. Interesting. You mentioned other things uh, to worry about. You have other responsibilities here and decide besides winemaking. What else are, are you involved in here? Um, well, so I think a, a big part of being a winemaker is being an educator, mm-hmm. um, not only to our staff so that, you know, they have talking points and they have, um, they have all the answers that they want. They get their questions answered so that they can be a vehicle for that information mm-hmm. to our consumers, but also directly to our consumers as well. So, you know, doing winemaker dinners and doing dinners here. Um, doing barrel tours during our during our um, 35th anniversary party, that was really rewarding because mm-hmm. people that don't normally have the chance to have the time with the winemakers and have that chance to barrel taste got this new new experience and I really feed off of that energy. I really enjoy when people have questions and they're you know genuinely interested and engaged mm-hmm. and. I, don't, I believe there's no stupid questions, and that's really what we try to express here at EM Hill is not any kind of pretentiousness, but a, you know, a safe place for learning and a, a place where people can feel comfortable, you know, no matter where they are on their wine-loving journey. Sure. Um, what else? Um, I, yeah, I work with our distributor. We just, I was able to pursue and find and with the help of our whole team uh, land a distributor here in Oregon so working with them quite an accomplishment we're with Winebow now as of August 1st Um, prior to that we had been with a beer distributor so it's definitely a step in the right direction they're they seem like a really great team we're excited to be working with them so the education in on that side of things Mm -hmm. too um, of course, you know, the winemaking and making sure that we have our tea, you know, just the things I'm thinking about right now are preparing for harvest, mm-hmm. making sure that we still have that well-oiled machine 
and that each part of that puzzle is a good a good uh, person to mm -hmm. work with that has their role defined and um, yeah, a little bit of marketing and work on the website. We manage, we do a lot of things ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we all wear a lot of different hats, but my focus now is mostly winemaking first, um, education, and I think that goes really hand in hand with the marketing too. Sure. Oh. You kind of mentioned the, the sort of seasonal aspect, the cyclical nature of the, is there a certain part of the process that you look most forward to? Um, I can't tell you harvest yet because I don't feel prepared yet, but once I feel prepared, <laughs> then it will be harvest until it's like 30 days in and then I'll be ready for harvest to be <laughs> over. Uh, that's the honest answer. Uh, I feel like it's it's almost like then when harvest really is over, you feel like sad and what's your purpose? And you, then you're just like looking forward to it the next day. So it's almost this like oddly like gestational or like almost uh, masochistic thing that we do to ourselves. But yeah, I, I love the energy. I love the, the team effort, mm -hmm. everyone coming together working together um, we do lunches all together every day during mm -hmm. harvest so I really look forward to that I really look forward to what is this vintage going to be mm -hmm. because there's a lot of anticipation for it and there's a lot of wanting to guess what it's going to be but again at the end of the day we have to let the fruit tell us and decide and um, so that dynamic part of the year I mean I think it is one of the single most important times of year when you're thinking about what that final wine is going to be. Mm -hmm. All the other decisions are very important as well, but you know, when we're talking about when to pick and when to press off and the blending process, I think those three things are the most important when it comes to the final product and the quality in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And I think that those three things probably are the ones that I really look forward to the most as well. Sure just because I know that I need to be fully, you know, engaged with it for us to have a good result. So, so it's inviting, it's very, it's inviting us to be engaged because it's an important sure. piece of the puzzle. What are some of the challenges you face in the industry? Things you were either prepared for challenge-wise or things that maybe caught you by surprise? Hmm. I would say for me personally, the challenges are one thing that I didn't anticipate, um, which has kind of stuck with me, is the challenge of, you know, wanting to be a doctor, wanting to go into the medical field and give back to society in this way. I did research in um, medicine before that, um, research and development. Mm -hmm. So having this job where I make booze for a living, uh, that's a challenge mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, I've struggled with that because uh, I want to do something that's measurably bettering society. Mm -hmm. And so about two years into my winemaking career, uh, one of my mom's friends had this opportunity to do a fundraiser 
and so we started working with Boys and Girls Aid Club, mm -hmm. and uh, they're based out of Portland. Or, I'm sorry, Boys and Girls Aid, and they opened my eyes to you know the world of galas and fundraisers, and that I can still contribute mm -hmm. in society in this really important way. I mean, you know, money. Money is a tool, a really important tool for any kind of movement. And mm -hmm. as someone who makes wine, you get to have the opportunity to choose where you want to see that money impact sure. in a positive way. So that has been really, um, really eye-opening for me in, in the sense of, oh, okay, this is a good path because I can still do a lot of good mm -hmm. with the tools that I have. Mm -hmm. And I think before that point, it was a little bit of guilt. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, this is really fun. And I'm like using my whole, my mind and my senses and my strength and physicality and all, all, these, all, all these pieces of me coming together that I get to use mm -hmm. for one job. Like, who can do that? That's, that's an awesome thing to feel like you're never, you're never going to get tired of it, you know? Mm -hmm. There's always going to be challenges in the job itself. But to overcome that really gave me longevity in mm -hmm. the career path. And then I think also um, something that people don't really want to talk about very often or isn't a very popular thing to talk about is alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's you know, there's a lot of overindulgence in the industry. Mm -hmm. And um, I came from family background of alcoholism. And so I think it's something that's worth bringing up and having a conversation about. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's a lot of jokes about it. You know, it's made to be made light of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I've learned my limitations personally over the course of being involved in this industry. But I, I think it is a challenge and I'd like to see more people talk about it and for them to be, for there to be, you know, resources or just an open conversation mm -hmm. about it. Cause it's a pretty glaring reality of, of our industry, mm -hmm. at least from my perspective. Sure, so. interesting. What about uh, entering the industry as a, as a young woman and now being a winemaker? What about, how have you, how has the industry responded to that? How have you felt as part of the industry? Yeah, that's a really, really good um, subject. <laughs> so the first time I ever went to Steamboat Conference, which is the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference mm -hmm. they have down at the Steamboat Inn on the Umpqua River, and Stephen Carey was pivotal mm -hmm. and involved with the development of mm -hmm. Steamboat. Um, since since it was started, it's been going now for, four, I think they just did their 40th year. Um, wow. And the first one I ever went to was that first summer after uh, my 2008 harvest, mm -hmm. so 2009. I remember going and I remember it being mostly men, maybe like less than 10% women. Mm -hmm. Um, mostly older men <laughs> and um, I felt a little out of place mm -hmm. but I think you know I've had the opportunity to grow up in a way where you know my my family my, my parents always supported me my mom always told me I could do anything 
you know, it was mm-hmm. one of those like typical millennial things. <laughs> you can do what, anything you put your mind to. But I will say that I think has benefited me. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's been comments or any kind of attitude, my approach to it has been mostly to ignore it. Mm-hmm. And I do believe I've had to work harder and prove myself more than others uh, or men, perhaps. I, you know, I hate to say it's men, women, or anything of that nature. I think it's um, honestly more of a societal thing. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about like building confidence and taking a little longer to feel confident doing a task. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that maybe society has imprinted on young women. And, you know, my whole philosophy is just keep doing it. If, if it doesn't feel comfortable yet, you're going to get there. And you're only going to feel confident and comfortable when you do on your own terms. But just keep doing it. Keep feeling uncomfortable in that pursuit mm-hmm. and you'll get there. And that's that's the way that I've kind of lived my life and the the wine industry is no different than that. So while it was maybe felt a little out of place to be in this room with you know a bunch of men in a generation older than me and they're saying all these things that I didn't understand at the time, I just thought, wow, it's awesome that I'm here and this is an amazing opportunity and I get to learn from all these folks and and then now going to Steamboat, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to go this year, but ne- last year when I went, it was probably closer to, you know, 40% women. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's been a lot of women that have come in and just been okay with that discomfort or not feeling totally like at home mm-hmm. in an environment, but they've stuck around and now they do feel at home, and I do feel at home. Mm-hmm. I feel very comfortable with my cohort, and our cohort has shifted with, I think, the generational shift as well, where we're seeing you know, people retire and new opportunities are being born because of that. Um, so, yeah, I guess if I have advice for young women, it's to stick through it, you know, have that grit and keep going. And maybe it's going to be a little harder physically in certain ways, Mm -hmm. but you're totally, you are capable of it. And uh, stubbornness can be a virtue in that way. (laughs) And it does get easier. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then just almost, I guess the way I approach it is not acknowledging the sexism and just pushing through it, you know? So Mm -hmm. if I don't acknowledge something or I'm not um, hating on something, then I'm not giving it power, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm operating as if it's not a challenge in the world. And for me, that's lessened the the severity of the challenge. Mm You mentioned seeing many more women at the most recent Steamboat than, than at your first. Do you, yeah. do you think it's easier to come into the industry now as a young woman in 2018 than it was even 10 years ago? I don't know. I, I, you know, I think that's for the next generation to decide. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I, I, I couldn't say. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was really hard for me to get my foot in the door, you mm-hmm. know? I had that job opportunity and then I just wanted to keep learning. Mm-hmm. And I was 
able, you know, to venture off on my own and go a place I'd never been. And I think if you have that as a human being, you know, take the gender away from it, I think the opportunity is going to be there. You just have to, again, be okay with that level of um, uncomfortableness to grow mm -hmm. and to take advantage of those opportunities. So I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think it's easier or harder. I think a lot of it is dictated by like what's going on internally. Mm -hmm. Sure. We talked about your time in New Zealand a little bit. I'm curious um, if you could give me a little bit of a sort of a comparison of the industries. You talked about working at a larger winery and then one that was more similar to this. Um, what's the, what are the similarities differences uh, working in New Zealand? And, and is that something you, you think about being part of your future going back? So let's see. Well, I mean, the differences for me, you know, is everything was about being there for work. So it made it really easy to mm -hmm. focus on work. You know, I lived at the place that I was working. Mm -hmm. And I've lived here while during harvest as well. Um, so I think just that alone, you're, you know, your distractions are limited. You're more focused. You, you don't have friends saying, let's go out. Mm -hmm. I don't, that doesn't really happen here anymore either <laughs> because they know it's harvest, it's not <laughs> happening. But um, as far as like as a whole, Like, I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think of specific things that were different. And I think most of the things that were different were more specific to the place and mm -hmm. the way that they mm -hmm. handled things. Like, you know, I talked about estate fruit versus purchased fruit. That was a big difference. Sure. You know, that'd be the difference between fruit on the crush pad at, you know, 8 a.m. versus 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. kind of scenario or, you know, your then having to wrap that fruit up in order to process it the following day and those those kind of differences which aren't necessarily specific to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know the living arrangements were really different so the first time I was I was at a homestay right you know 20 minutes from the place that I worked um, and so there was this sense of community because there were about 10 of us that lived in this house called Kate's Place in Martinborough, mm -hmm. New Zealand. And um, major sense of community in that sense that was a little different than here because it was all people from all over the world. We had a, a girl who's now a winemaker at her parents' vineyard in Germany and another gal from Germany. We had um, an Italian guy. We had this French girl from the south of France and you know she she her summer job was making pizzas on the south of France and then she came to do harvest mm -hmm. and you know so being able to meet all these people from just internationally from Pinot land global <laughs> it, it, that was really different mm -hmm. and I know that we have that here too but in our little bubble of YVV we tend to not get in touch with that as much so I think that's that's actually a good opportunity that'd be a good thing to connect up with more wineries again as we have in the past and you know get to meet the interns that are here mm -hmm. um, yeah I mean for me New Zealand is like Oregon 
10.0, right? It's just everything is more extreme. So the landscape's really different. Mm -hmm. the, the mornings are colder and it's just, um, you, you sort of feel like you're on vacation even though you're, you know, <laughs> working your ass off during harvest there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's different in a lot of ways, but it's hard for me to, mm -hmm. I think the question you're, you're asking, it's a little harder for me to answer. Fair enough. Yeah. It's a good answer. <laughs> um, what about, uh, so this was real early on in your, in your wine career that you, that you were there and you were there, you said two years in a row. Right. Um, were there experiences there that kind of made you, or, or, or here, were there experiences that made you feel like, um, I can do this? Like, not, not that I want to, but like, this is, this is, this is my, I'm meant to do this. I'm meant to be in this industry. Were there any kind of like eye-opening experiences for you that you just felt like, yeah, I want to do this for forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the feeling that I get when I drive up here at six o'clock at night and it's that, you know, or, or later, it's that like golden hour and you, you get all the different sounds of what this place is mm -hmm. um, and you're alone and you're just absorbing it all. I mean, that for me is a real indication that I'm doing the right thing and that I'm at the right place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I have a really, I've developed a really deep appreciation and love of this place. Mm -hmm. um, so when you drive up the driveway to your work that you've done, you know, thousands of other times and you still get that like, like your, I don't know, like a feeling of like, oxytocin with a place, right? <laughs> like you're like, I'm in love with this place. I think that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, the, the owners are so generous and open that they've encouraged me to, you know, talk about it with a sense of ownership and, you know, come out here and camp out here and spend the night on the weekends and have birthday parties here. And, mm -hmm. you know, all of that really just, solidifies your relationship with the place too. Um, and then I think, you know, just, I tend to be a critical person. I have a theory that most uh, winemakers are the judging in the Myers-Briggs personality mm -hmm. uh, performance that most of us are judging by nature. So I feel like my judginess is actually an asset in this job. So it's the personality is well suited mm -hmm. and there's somewhere for that judgment to be channeled in a really manageable and healthy way. Um, so, you know, at the sensory table when we're doing the blending and when we're making these calls, you know, it's not like a crippling feeling of is there, you know, is this the right answer or is this uh, over judgmental, mm -hmm. it's like there's direction mm -hmm. with the judgment, there's a purpose for it, and there's a, a place to utilize it that's sure. useful. Um, so I, f I feel like I'm like that's taken something that could be mm -hmm. negative mm -hmm. and made it actually really positive in, in my performance. Sure. Um, Plus you're basing on your own expertise as well, which, which changes a little bit. If you're judging from your own kind of expertise in the subject. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I could come up with a lot of other answers as to what makes me feel like this is the right path. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I'd say like that intuitive 
knowing and just listening to the feelings that I get mm -hmm. when I'm here and when I'm doing it and when someone drinks the wine that we made. You know, I, I, I would say actually, you know, recently there was a moment mm -hmm. at uh, IPNC, we were a featured winery this year mm -hmm. and we went up for our vineyard tour at Archery Summit. And I sat on a panel with the winemaker of Archery Summit and Domain Serene and um, um, Sandberg Winery and uh, Illahi and myself. We were all up there. I just happened to be the only female winemaker on the panel. And I felt very comfortable and confident despite that. Um, that we all talked about our wines. We poured um, our 2016 Reserve, which was my first vintage as head winemaker. We shared it with a group of the attendees of mm -hmm. IPNC. The response was incredible. Mm -hmm. The response from the attendees and from the other winemakers was really encouraging. Um, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the other winemakers said that this, the wine was seamless and to get that kind of feedback and then also to be, you know, pleased with the result mm -hmm. of your winemaking when you are so inclined to be very critical mm -hmm. and judgmental, then that was a real, you know, a moment. Mm -hmm. And we all knew which wine was ours and talk, you know, talked about the differences and how we made the wines, but just feeling really proud of that result and proud of our team as a whole in being able to make something that we could recognize and that we felt really good about, you know? Mm -hmm. that, that's a moment of, yeah, this is definitely the right path. Sure. That's a good answer. Congratulations, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really kind of felt like a lot of things coming to mm -hmm. a moment of clarity. Sure. Well, that's your first and your first vintage as sort of solo winemaker too. That's you know that's that's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you also have a, a personal label, uh, a cheerful note. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us how that uh, came to be. So, when you asked about you know if I had thought about this as a career, I remember the resume that I had put together for that interview, mm -hmm. and the resume said on it that my goal was to make my own wine, like have my own label. So I knew, I always knew that was something that I wanted to do. And as time has progressed, I've actually kind of stepped back from a cheerful note uh, as of the 2016 vintage, because one, it's a lot of time. Okay, so there's only so much time in the day. And two, now I have Yamhill to focus on, you know, and I, I'm getting to, make all these choices for Yamhill specifically, which, you know, is this great opportunity and it, the breadth of it is so much more than what a cheerful note is going to be slash was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it started because it was a goal. And again, I worked with uh, Boys and Girls Aid and did 10% of my profits from a cheerful note was given to them. So it was always an altruistic brand. It was always meant to be um, marketing to the thoughtful consumer and 
and also meant to be um, kind of a reminder and a um, dedication to my mom. Mm -hmm. So the logo is her handwriting. It was pieced together by the graphic artist mm -hmm. that did the artwork on the label as well. And yeah, so while I guess it started out as something that I had just decided that I was doing <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with creative freedom, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and now I feel like Yamhill has given me a lot of creative freedom and I'm not needing a cheerful note for that purpose anymore. Um, I'd like to bring it back again. So I made it in 2013 and 14. And then I decided it's taking too much time. I, I need to be able to really focus on Yamhill and mm -hmm. get everything running smoothly here before I can give a cheerful note the time it deserves. So I stepped back at that point from a cheerful note and put all my focus on Yamhill. And um, I'm excited to start a cheerful note again when I can make it the way that I really want to make it and not cut any kind of corners because of finances or mm -hmm. time. And um, I'm not sure when that will be yet, but probably in the next five years or so. Sure. But I, I feel really lucky that they allowed me to make it here. I mean, it wouldn't be possible without that. Sure. And I feel really grateful for everything that it's taught me. Just like having a small business in general, it's mm -hmm. been very educational um, in that way. So yeah, it's sort of a, there's a little bit of an unknown there still. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know that it's time to walk away from it for now. And I'm, I just know what I'm focused on in, in this moment and that I'm going to get back to that in the future. Sure. You talked about creative freedom when you started it. Was there something in specifically you wanted to try that was, that was different than anything else you could try here? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, at that point, there were a lot of things that I wanted to try <laughs> that I didn't get to try, so I tried them all. <laughs> and it turned out to be a really different wine, which was ultimately my number one goal, mm -hmm. was to make something that was as different from E.M. Hill as possible. You know, for expression and for, you know, reasons, as obvious reasons, like I don't want to directly, uh, um, I don't want to be like competing with my employer, right, <laughs> obviously. So I tried different yeast strains. Mm -hmm. um, I used strains that were more um, adapt to give fruit forward characteristic brighter. Mm -hmm. I used one block specifically that I helped plant in 2009. So I, Dennis said, you can buy whatever part of the vineyard you want. And I didn't necessarily buy the part of the vineyard that I thought was the best. I bought the part that I could learn from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, working with older fruit, you get to work with these really well-established vineyards. And I wanted to work with a vineyard that had it's still its infancy and its adolescence and that like awkward stage to go through and have the opportunity to learn from it. So I'm, I'm now working with all the blocks, which is incredible and an amazing learning opportunity, mm -hmm. and including the Lakeview block that I sourced 
my fruit from. Sure. I did um, some whole cluster experimentation. We hadn't done that with Yamhill prior. I think Stephen had done it decades before um, before I ever came on. So I had never done that. I wanted to do that and see what results came from that. Mm -hmm. um, I did um, pump overs instead of punch downs because I wa wanted it to be really gentle and delicate. And the wine turned out as different from Yam Hill as the winemaking practices were. You know, it ended up being lighter, brighter, like all the things that I talked about mm -hmm. really showed themselves. Mm -hmm. And it really, you know, I guess was this illustration of how the winemaking hand does have a really big impact. And yeah, so lots of things different and just kind of did them all at the same time. <laughs> and that became my style. And now I'm doing some of those things with the Yamhill brand. Mm -hmm. So we've started doing um, whole cluster fermentation. Um, we've, we've done some cold soaking, um, extended maceration, different ways of managing tannins. Mm -hmm. And I'd say some of that stemmed from my brand. Sure. So that's, it's a cool thing how everything relates to each other and there's this crossover mm -hmm. of um, knowledge that happens, you know. Uh, you mentioned earlier that your that experimentation is, is not only in your brand, but now in Yamhill Valley is something that you're really interested in. So mm -hmm. let's talk about uh, so the next five, ten years at Yamhill Valley. What are you hoping uh, to see happen here? What are you planning to try? What, what is your vision for the future here? Yeah, so uh, our vision is always to express the site first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And so the vision for the future really has to do with finding the perfect place for each of the blocks. Mm -hmm. And again, that's going to probably change year to year. Um, or maybe it won't. We'll see. But um, starting in 2017, we started sourcing our rosé from one of the coolest parts of our vineyard. We had um, a really wild response to that rosé. We've since um, sold out of it and um, that worked well for us. And I, I like bringing the part about the wine growing and about what the vineyard's giving us into the conversation mm -hmm. when we're doing the education piece with our staff and with our customers. And having this, you know, broad stroke goal of utilizing the fruit from a specific place in the vineyard to then match up with our program and have our program reflect mm -hmm. the estate in a way like let's say there's something that doesn't fit out there i i would hope we could develop a, a brand or not a brand but a label mm -hmm. or a potential bottling if that is the case so more listening, you know, more development, doing more of what works, but staying open-minded even if something doesn't work one time, mm -hmm. trying it again in a different vintage. Mm -hmm. um, Long-term, you know, it's really just to make the best wine that we can. And 
I think for Yamhill, a lot of that is getting people the opportunity to step out into the places in the vineyard where specific wine came from. So that's something that we um, have talked all about and that we're really excited to start implementing going forward is doing more um, cellar season activities. So doing uh, cellar season, getting into the cellar in the winter, oh, cool. doing barrel tastings of the blocks separately and really opening that up mm -hmm. to our customer base. You know, I think just this weekend having had such a great response to our barrel tours, that is a piece of the of the industry that not everyone gets to see and an opportunity for us specifically and then in the summer having vineyard season so having you know cellar season and vineyard season and during vineyard season taking out these bottles to the place in the vineyard that they came from mm -hmm. and showing people again where that originated and teaching them about the cycle and you know i really i get passionate about the education part of it and I get passionate when people listen and they're excited and they want to learn more like seeing somebody be interested or like having that light bulb moment when they have these ideas or questions pop into their head it definitely like energizes me mm -hmm. so sure. I see a lot of opportunity for that for us in the future and it starts with the fruit so it really ties in with that philosophy that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about, do you have any uh, experiments uh, of things you want to try, things you want to plant new, anything like kind of on the tip of your tongue that you're excited about? Yeah, I have a lot of ideas about diversification. Mm -hmm. um, I think diversification in the future is going to be something that is vital to being relevant and successful. And I think it just kind of ties in with being you know, remaining relevant is going to be, a requirement of that is going to be innovation. Mm -hmm. So innovation for us, I think, is being open-minded to the possibilities of new varietals with a changing climate. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps Syrah, perhaps something different, mm -hmm. but I think you know, there, we're getting to the time where we're going to need to start planting some different varietals. This is my, my personal opinion, you know, I, I think I, f I feel really supported by the owners and I think that they're, they're also all science minded, they're PhDs and their daughter who's our general manager, Jenny, she's a biology major as well. So. It's all about making the argument in a way that's undeniable, right? Like, this is scientifically based, and then applying that to the decisions that we make. So I think, um, yeah, diversification is a big one. Um, and I think, you know, that education piece around respecting the land mm -hmm. and really defining what sustainability is and letting that be a point of conversation with our customer base as well. You know, talking about water usage mm -hmm. and getting education in how we use our water, how we're saving our water, 
you know, getting people to think about these things that are, are I think, going to be increasingly important, mm -hmm. probably faster than we realize. Mm -hmm. um, starting to have those conversations and starting to really keep an open forum about that kind of information because, mm -hmm. yeah, I would hate to miss the boat on that. It's, it's all coming no, no matter what we do, so. I think sooner rather than later, getting mm -hmm. getting those conversations going is a good thing for us. Sure. You're on the early part of your career in the wine industry, so you have a nice long future to look out at. What do you see on the horizon for Oregon wine in general? You talk about global climate change, global warming. Mm -hmm. um, what other things are on the horizon? Do you see growth continuing? Do you see leveling off? What What are your What are your thoughts on the future? Um, I, I don't know, you know, I think, Indy, Indy, thank you for telling us. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot of unknowns with the whole global warming thing, and I think that, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more um, interest in water. Um, what I, I guess I, can, I get concerned about, you know, every time I drive down Highway 18, I see more vineyards and more hazelnut farms going in. And that means more water sinks, right? Like more places where water's going to. And we're already experiencing this drought. And, you know, it's, it's right in front of our faces, the smoke and mm -hmm. the, the wildfires and that we're all affected by it. So um, I think more responsibility around water use and land use is inevitable. I think that will likely come from the top down. I think it has to be, I think, you know, more conversations with our political leaders and involvement with Oregon Wine Board and you know we're already starting to have these conversations. I think having Greg Jones at Linfield is a really amazing asset to us because again we're looking at someone who's scientifically minded and has you know the proof is in the pudding so to speak right so um, more conversations about that more responsibility more um, coming together you know, we've, that's something we've been so good at historically, mm -hmm. is coming together and sharing knowledge. And you see it with Linfield, and you see it with Oregon State, and you see um, these, you know, statewide crop load projects going on and different um, community-based inf pulling information and sharing it with the industry as a whole. I think we're going to see more and more in that, of that, and I think we're going to see more and more um, true like land stewards and mm -hmm. water stewards in our industry. And I think what I really hope to see is a redefining of um, what economic stability and um, sustainability is to reflect ecological stability, because I think the way things are right now, we over extract the the environment and we've defined things in a way that's economically stable 
that isn't necessarily sustainable to the environment. So I think, you know, redefining that and maybe not pulling so much every year, mm -hmm. but finding a way to rebalance it so that we can have a really long-term projection of a happy planet and a happy vineyard mm -hmm. and a happy water table, all those things working together to provide jobs and to provide a product that can be enjoyed for many future generations. Sure. Um, what role do you feel you play in that future? Yeah, well, I think the education piece mm -hmm. is um, an opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. So this interview, for example, you know, <laughs> these are maybe not very popular things to be thinking about or talking about, but I, I'd rather say what's really on my mind. And some of that means that my role is currently developing mm -hmm. and I'm trying to find where my efforts can be used in a way that is starting the conversation with more people. So I think, I guess that's my role right now is like just having the, com the uncomfortable sometimes conversation around this is an uncomfortable truth, mm -hmm. right? Like this is just part of what we're dealing with. And um, I think now starting to talk about it and then also getting involved with, you know, live and working with um, Oregon Wine Board. And because I think the altruism is there. I think people really do want to do the right thing. And I think a big piece of it is uh, ignorance in some ways mm -hmm. um, there's you know and that goes back to again our opportunity is to educate our consumer like oh wow I didn't know that I didn't realize that you know awesome well, good you learned something really important today and um, admittedly I'm still developing my role mm -hmm. I'm still you know find, finding out what is the biggest impact that I can have because I I do feel really passionately about it. You know, I, I, I want to see us recover from the era of wildfires mm -hmm. and drought. I would like to see that happen. And I think we all have to take a really big role and be like involved in our actions, have to reflect to make the difference. Sure. You mentioned Oregon Wine's history of collaboration on these kinds of topics um, with the growth of the industry so so rapid over the last say 15 years mm -hmm. um, is that still something that's going to be happening is, is the industry still that industry uh, where there's that amount of collaboration and uh, altruism I think so yeah yeah I think that we've worked really hard to keep it that way too so you know steamboat is going to continue on um, even though Stephen has passed away, his legacy continues with Steamboat mm -hmm. and with Yamhill. Um, so we'll still have a collaborative uh, effort in, in that for sure. I know that for a fact. We'll continue to share information in the same way. Um, many other uh, collaborations and you know seminars have been put together in a similar style as Steamboat. So mm -hmm. we have the Chardonnay technical tasting that's a very open book 
you know, all the information is right there. When you, when you buy your ticket, you get this package of really nicely organized information that has everything from what the bricks were when the fruit was picked to the growing conditions to the winemaking and, mm -hmm. and the, the barrel program. All the information is right there. I mean, and the, the truth is you can never recreate the same wine again. Mm -hmm. So it, I think we've learned that our growth has probably been this fast because of that collaborative spirit. And as long as people can continue to keep, to remember that, you know, our success is definitely attached to our willingness to share information and help our neighbor, then we can continue striding forward in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's going to be people that come in that maybe don't agree with that. And maybe people that only want to be on the receiving end of the conversation. And, that's just part of reality and part of life. And um, I think we're gonna keep being collaborative regardless of that. And um, I, I, I'm especially impressed with uh, Willamette Valley Wineries Association this last year. I mean, some of the collaborative efforts that they've done mm -hmm. have been pretty, you know, business changing for people. Mm -hmm you know, help people to be successful and put them in touch with others that can be success, that can help them to be successful. And um, yeah, I don't see it going away anytime soon. I think it's why all those ships have, you know, rose together and it's not, it's definitely that way today. You know, you'd be surprised you could email or call a winemaker that you might think you know, maybe they don't know you at all, and the willingness mm. to help is definitely really apparent. And I haven't seen that slow down, and I don't, I don't expect it to. And if I have anything to do with it, I, <laughs> I won't let it. Good answer. Uh, that's all the questions I've prepared. Uh, okay. Anything else you'd like to mention at the end? Anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Any, any parting thoughts? Um. No, I mean, I think your questions were really good. I especially like the question about, you know, being a female in the industry, because it's not something that I would have normally brought up in the conversation. You get that from my answer. <laughs> but um, I think it's an important one, and I'm, I hope that young people can take something from that that's helpful. Um, but no, not a, not a ton to add. I think it was pretty complete. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your answers and for your candor. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.